Take your Bibles out this morning, if you would please, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Actually, we'll, uh, we'll back up and begin reading again in chapter 4, verse 23. Um, continuing our series this morning uh, that we started last week on the Sermon on the Mount and looking, of course, first of all, at the Beatitudes. And you'll notice the first two Beatitudes, we're slowing down, taking one at a time because of the importance of these first two foundational Beatitudes, as I hope will become clear. Uh, we may group some of the other ones together and move along a little faster. But looking this morning at perhaps one of the most least understood and least appropriated verses, maybe in the whole entire Bible. And uh, kind of a paradox, as many of the Beatitudes are. Uh, the title this morning reflects that paradox, Happy Are the Sad. The world says that doesn't even make sense. Not even logical. Happy are the sad? We're going to look at that this morning. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Beginning there in verse 23, it says, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. The Decapolis would be the ten cities around the Sea of Galilee. And from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Father, this morning we ask you to open our understanding to your words. Speak to us. Lord, may your spirit do what only he can do. Only he can speak to our hearts. Lord, as I speak to ears, I pray that you would speak to hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Greenwich, England has been the home of Greenwich Mean Time since 1884. For years, it was the place from which all time zones in the world were measured. Greenwich Mean Time was replaced in 1960 by Coordinated Universal Time. Now, of course, for ages, people looked at time in rather approximate ways. For most centuries in human history, they would look at the bodies in the heavens above. During the daytime, they would look at the sun, the placement of the sun in the sky, and just approximate what time of the day it was based on where the sun was. It was in Britain, however, that the rise of railroads dictated something a little more exact. 
railroads needed to stay on schedule, and so they forced a new standard of time on the nation. Standard time and time zones were not enacted in the United States until 1883. Until then, time was largely a local matter. Each village or town set its own standard for time. For example, there might be a big clock in the city square on a church steeple that provided the basis for time in that town and everybody would set their watches by it. But that could differ from town to town depending on how well the clock was maintained. Again, inexactness was a problem for the railroads throughout the United States and Canada and so a move was made to standardize time. Now it's interesting to read the history of time management and all the people involved and the steps they went through. That's obviously not our purpose here today. But I mention a standard being needed for time as the world became more and more industrialized for a reason. We're going to draw a parallel. Now, by the way, concerning time, let me say this week I have a new favorite church member, okay? Harvey Lyerly. He told me this week, Scott, you know, your sermons really are very, very short. (laughs) And he said, I mean that. I'm not joking. You see, he and Shirley travel a lot to Amish country now up in Ohio. And they've gotten to know some of the Amish families. And they go to church with them. And he said the church services on Sunday morning are at minimum four hours with the sermon being three of the four hours. (laughs) Lucky you, you could have been uh, born Amish. (laughs) Well, as we look at the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are viewed as the Standard for human behavior and attitudes among those who claim to be followers of Jesus. Now I know we could go deeper into the New Testament, uh, into the book of Galatians, and, and we could read the passage in Galatians 5 on the fruit of the Spirit. And certainly that's another list of standards that we ought to measure our Christian walk by. But before that, here in the Sermon on the Mount, at the very beginning, Jesus gives the Beatitudes. And so the Beatitudes are standards. Here is what a follower of Jesus Christ should look like. Not in order to become a Christian, but rather because you are a Christian. Now, as we come to the Beatitudes again this morning, I want to remind you that we are dealing with the issues of the heart. The Beatitudes speak about the heart of a man or a woman. Later on, Jesus is going to talk about His people being the salt and light of the world. But you've got to understand the flow of thought here. You don't just wake up one morning and suddenly and inexplainably become the salt of the earth or the light of the world. A transformation has to first of all take place, namely the new birth. 
And then as a part of that transformation, Jesus remolds our hearts. He changes our thinking. He conforms us to his word. That's the sanctification process or growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And then because we are so different from the world and our standards are so different than the world's standards, we become salt and light as a result of that. And so the Beatitudes show the types of changes the Lord desires to make in each of us. Now essentially we can lay the Beatitudes alongside of our lives to see first of all if we even have evidence of biblical conversion to begin with. And if the answer to that question is yes, are we continuing to grow in Christ's likeness? Well what do we learn from the Beatitudes? First... Jesus expects his followers to be poor in spirit. We saw last week that, that there's not even conversion apart from that first beatitude. Being poor in spirit means that we, we come to that realization that there is nothing whatsoever that we can do to earn our own salvation. There is no good deed. There, is no, there are no amount of good works that we can do to earn a justified standing before a holy God. We are spiritually bankrupt. And we only stand before God by the unmerited favor and grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people have these imaginary spiritual treasure chests, I call them. And, and they walk over to them and open them up and it's like they think there are things inside that they can pull out and say, God, look at me. I keep the Ten Commandments or I do this or I do that. Surely I'm worthy of your heaven. To be poor in spirit means that we walk over and open up that uh, spiritual treasure chest and look inside and we come to the realization it is utterly empty. There is nothing inside of it. We have nothing that we can hold up to God and say, God, look at me. And so then we're poor in spirit and realize salvation is not about us and our work it's all about Jesus Christ and his work it's the attitude that says nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling that's what it means to be poor in spirit and then from there there's the other beatitudes we mourn that's the one we'll look at today we're, we're to be meek or gentle we're to be those who hunger and thirst after righteousness so forth and so on and, and then Jesus says a couple of things are going to happen as a result of living out the beatitudes first of all the world isn't going to like you very much you're going to be persecuted for righteousness sake he says at the end of the Beatitudes. But then the second thing that's going to happen because of that, you will end up being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, as we mentioned last week, the Beatitudes present character qualities that are total opposite standards from anything that the world would tell us. 
If the world were right in the Beatitudes, it would say, Happy are the powerful, for they shall force everybody to bend to their will. Happy are the rich, because they can buy whatever they want to buy. Happy are those who laugh and never cry. Happy are the strong. But the Beatitudes that Jesus told give radically different standards. Each of these Beatitudes, by the way, let me offer it to you as something you can pray about in your life. That that character quality, that the Lord would bring it about in your life and in my life. Well, let's see today what is involved in this second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, what we'll learn is the kind of mourning that ends up being a blessing to the one who is the follower of Jesus Christ. And we'll see why. Now, before we get into it, though, I want to ask you an important question this morning. What is it that you mourn over? What do you mourn over and what do you rejoice over? What do you laugh over? Think about those questions this morning. First of all, this morning I want you to note with me, not every kind of mourning qualifies. Now, as you know, we live in a fallen world. All you've got to do is open your eyes and look around and you can see that since Genesis chapter 3, we live in a fallen world. Sin has affected the whole entire created order. And as we look around, we see sin and darkness and evil and suffering. Folks, I can promise you this week in Chattanooga, you don't have to convince the residents of Chattanooga that we live in a fallen world. It's the type of world that sin has brought about. And in this type of world, life is filled with pain and suffering. Now, you may have heard this beatitude read at funerals before. But is that really what Jesus is speaking of? Now, before I answer that, let me say that the Scripture does refer to God being the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. So God is certainly near to the brokenhearted in all kinds of different aspects. We may mourn as we go through trials in life. The Bible says we'll go through trial and tribulation. Jesus said in this world you'll have trials and tribulations. James says life is dotted with trials of all different shapes and sizes and colors. To live is to experience trials and we mourn. Some of those trials have us on our knees mourning. We certainly mourn when we lose loved ones. That's another reason we mourn. We may later in life mourn over missed opportunities in our lives. I'll never forget back when I was in seminary, one of the nursing homes that I preached in, there was a man by the name of Ernest who would come forward at the end in his wheelchair and oftentimes he was just weeping and sobbing. Now, Ernest knew that he had been saved. He didn't have any doubts about that. 
But he said, Pastor, the reason I'm crying, the reason I'm so upset is I look at my life now as an old man with nothing else to look forward to but dying. He says, as an old man, as I look at my life as a Christian, I have wasted my life. He said, I know I'm saved, but in in building a business and tending to a family and just looking after all the needs of the world and the things of the world, he said, I see now that as far as ministry or living my life for Christ, I've utterly wasted my life. And those years are gone. He said, I can't do anything about it now. I'd counsel with him, of course, and pray with him. But he was broken hearted over lost opportunities. He couldn't say like the Apostle Paul, I fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished my course. And because he couldn't say that, he was grieved in his heart. Many different reasons we mourn. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so certainly the Lord identifies with all of our grief, whatever the reason for it is. But can I say this morning that commentators are pretty well in agreement that is not what Jesus is speaking of here? And so let's move on secondly and see the morning that is blessed. The morning that is blessed. Let me begin here by saying that this beatitude is probably in greater contrast with the world's philosophy than any other single beatitude. Maybe any other single verse in the whole New Testament. Again, happy or the sad. You go to work tomorrow and you tell your co-workers or, or you go to school tomorrow. Of course, not school, summer's out unless you're in summer school. But you go, you, wherever you, whoever you associate with tomorrow, you tell them happy or the sad and, and they're going to think you've gone crazy. Not even logical. It's not even reasonable in their minds. The world says the opposite. The world pursues the opposite. What does the man of the world do? He goes, for instance, to happy hour. Or he chases after just an endless string of athletic events or theater or whatever. It might be anything to entertain him on the outside. He needs something to entertain him and make him feel good. Paul even writes to Timothy that in the last days men will heap up to themselves teachers who will scratch their itching ears. They'll turn away from sound doctrine and turn to myths. I've listened to Christians, be, not, not just here, in other churches, I've listened to the testimony of Christians before, and they'd say something like, you know what, in our Sunday school class, I like so-and-so teacher. You know why I like so-and-so teacher? Because he makes us laugh every week. He's funny. He's the funniest man I've ever heard. And he makes our class laugh. We have a good time in there. Nothing about biblical exposition. He just makes us laugh. 
What does the man of the world do? He consumes his life with anything that will entertain his mind and heart and give him joy on the outside because there's no joy on the inside. Heard Billy Graham say one time that he had counseled with people before who said, Dr. Graham, I cannot stand to be alone or in a quiet room. I have to be surrounded by people and activity and noise all the time because when I get alone, when I get by myself and it's quiet, I cannot live with my thoughts. And so they've got to continue to feel their fill their lives with things on the outside. But Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn. It's generally agreed that what he's talking about here is those who mourn their loss of innocence, their loss of righteousness and holiness before God. They're mourning their sinful condition and they, they fall in short of the glory of God. That's what they're mourning over. And that means that this beatitude goes hand in hand with the first beatitude. The first one, we're spiritually bankrupt before God. And then secondly, we mourn over that. It's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It's another to grieve and mourn over it. But it makes perfect sense. Once I see that I have sinned against God and there's nothing I can offer to God, then it makes sense that I cast myself upon His mercy, weeping over my sin and my shortcoming. Folks, this is a sorrow that is not like the sorrow of the world. Remember, Paul spoke to the Corinthians about a sorrow of the world that might produce tears but no repentance. And Paul said, but a godly sorrow, yes, it produces tears and it produces weeping and sorrow, but then it moves on beyond that and it actually produces repentance in one's life. Now, interestingly enough, out of the nine words used in the Greek text for mourning or sadness, this is the strongest word of all nine. Isn't it interesting that in the New Testament there are nine words that are used for mourning or sorrow? John MacArthur says that in itself, when all, those, all those words, that in itself ought to say something to us about what's being communicated uh, of the human experience, that the human experience tends to be one long trail of tears. Takes nine words to describe it. But this is the most descriptive, the most intense, the most powerful word out of all nine. It's the same word that was used of the disciples mourning when they saw the body of Jesus being laid in the tomb before they realized that he was going to be raised again on the third day. When they first saw his body laid in the tomb, they thought it's all over. The one that we have followed and believed in for three years is dead. He's gone. That's what they believed initially and they were sad. They mourned. Same word that's used here. I want you to think of a biblical example of this type of mourning. In your minds, go back with me a moment to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament... King David committed sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed. 
He thought it was a cover-up. Remember Nathan the prophet came to him and told him that story about a rich man who had all these lambs and a poor man who only had one and the rich man took the one of the poor man and slaughtered it and David was angry. And he said, such a man will die. And I can, I can only imagine in my mind the prophet Nathan having a big, long, bony finger. And he pointed that long, bony finger at David. And he said, you are the man. And that's what it took for David to be confronted with this sin. Psalm 51 is the record of David being brokenhearted before God because of his sin. He said, God, before you and you only have I sinned. Now, he had sinned against his own body, his own family, Bathsheba, Uriah. He'd sinned against the nation itself. But he said, God, the greatest sin of all is I've sinned against you. And would you create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me? And God, bring back the joy of my salvation. And God did that. But that was, that's an example of somebody living out this beatitude even in the Old Testament. You see, folks, perhaps there are times in the church today when we are too light-hearted and we are too jovial. Now, there's a balance here. Jesus came to give us abundant life. He said, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And we know the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. But all of that doesn't mean that the church should go around always laughing, always smiling. There is a time to grieve. There is a time to grieve in your life and in my life. Scholars point out some of the other times that, uh, that ought to be time, or examples of when we need to grieve. And they list biblical examples of this. Another biblical example of grieving would be the Lord Jesus himself. Remember that first Palm Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem and they were singing and shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were casting palm branches and their outer garments before him. And, and it says when Jesus came over the Mount of Olives and he saw that panoramic view of the, the city of Jerusalem and the temple, what did he do? Did he break out laughing? No, he broke out crying and weeping. you remember why? Because they were going to reject him. By the end of the week, they were going to be shouting crucifying. And Jesus said, oh, if you would have only realized and recognized the time of your visitation. But they were going to reject him. And they were going to continue to... to tried to kick against the Roman powers until finally in 70 AD the Romans were going to come in and destroy them entirely. Josephus says there was so much bloodshed in the city of Jerusalem when the Romans finally came in and just flattened everything, flattened the temple, destroyed, killed multitudes of people. Josephus said there were literally streams of blood running along in, in, in the streets that could be visible like little creeks of blood. That's how massive the bloodshed was. But had they realized Jesus as their Messiah, they would have realized that his kingdom was not of this world. And so even under a Roman power, they could have lived by, by a higher kingdom. 
But he said, not only are you going to be destroyed spiritually, which is the worst of all because you've rejected me, but it, you're even going to be destroyed physically as a, as a city. He wept over them because of their unbelief. Another example of mourning would be in Psalm 119, 136. The psalmist said, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep thy law. He's weeping because of all the evil in the world around him. In Ezekiel 9, 4, we see God telling an angelic messenger to go through the city of Jerusalem and mark, mark out every person who grieves and mourns over the sin of the city. And keep them safe. And, and then whoever is not marked, whoever doesn't receive the mark, the other angels are to go through and they're to destroy those people. Folks, think about some application of that today. Do, do you and I ever grieve, not just over our own sin, but do we ever grieve over the condition of the world? Look at some of the decisions being made right now in America and some of the directions America is going in. Should that not break a Christian's heart? Should the church not be weeping because of some of the stuff going on? We see Paul in Romans 9 weeping over his countrymen. They had, they had every reason with their Old Testament history to come to faith in Christ, but they had not. And so he's weeping over their lostness. Do you know any lost people, family, friends, neighbors? Are you shedding any tears over them? We need to grieve over the loss. Jesus grieved. Matthew 9 says when he saw the multitudes, he, he was grieved and moved with compassion in his heart because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That means if I'm going to be like Jesus Christ, there's going to need to be some weeping in my heart and sadness in my heart over the lost and compassion for the lost. Think about it. Think about it. The one who's been on both sides, the only one. Because in the incarnation, the incarnation was not the beginning of Jesus. He's existed from eternity past. In the incarnation, he came to this earth. And then when he died and rose again and is essentially went back to the Father. He's the one, if anybody's qualified to speak on eternity, it's Jesus. And he told his disciples on one occasion, if your right hand offends, you cut it off. It's better to go into eternity maimed than, than in, into hell. If your right eye offends, you pluck it out. Better to go into eternity uh, without an eye than to, to, than to go everything into hell. The one who's qualified to speak about eternity said, spare no expense to stay out of that place. Do we ever weep over those who don't know Christ? There ought to be more weeping. We should weep over unrighteousness in our own lives. The great missionary David Brainerd who died at a young age, he wrote in his diary on the 18th of October 1740, In my morning devotions my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. Some people say, but pastor, 
Shouldn't mourning over sin like that only be a part of my life back when I got saved? I was grieved over sin, got saved. Certainly it needs to be a part of then. But even in the Christian's life, there needs to be a continuing sensitivity to sin. To that in your life and my life that breaks the heart of God. You see, the Bible says God disciplines those whom He loves. That's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. How about in my life or your life as we go about in life and and, and things happen and we know that we've disappointed God and fallen short of the glory of God and maybe sinned against God in some way or had the the attitude that we shouldn't have had or said something we shouldn't have said or, or did something we should Do we as believers continue to grieve and mourn over sin in our lives? We need to. Or do we just kind of glibly go our way, doing our own thing? Hey, happy, having a good time. Jesus is saying there needs to be a continual brokenness in our lives over our sinful condition. In Isaiah 22, the scripture says, In that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we'll die. God was calling on people to mourn and grieve over sin, and the people were saying, no, let's just have a party and have a good time. We need to mourn over sin. We need to mourn over lostness. We need to mourn over anything that breaks God's heart. Is there any mourning over these things in your life and my life? Third thing I want you to see, the promise given. He said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It's emphatic. They're the ones who will be comforted. Folks, what does the world say? The world says, hide your sorrow, just put on a happy face, put a grin on your face, and fake it. God says, no, bring it to me, let me deal with it, and then I'll give you joy from the inside out. Now, let me say something here. There's there's nothing special about mourning itself like like other things we we don't worship worship we don't worship fasting we don't worship prayer whether it's worship or prayer or fasting those are tools that God uses we worship God and we use tools he's given us mourning is the same we don't mourn simply for the sake of mourning That's not the point. We're being called here to genuinely mourn over our sinful condition, over the lost, over the condition of the world. And the mourning should uh, cause us to call on God who heals and saves and comforts. 
The promise of the Bible is that when we come to God in spiritual brokenness and emptiness, not holding on to any kind of pride, and we're truly repentant and mournful, then God does what only God can do. God forgives and cleanses and gives that perfect peace that passes all understanding. And so the promise of this beatitude is that when we bring sin and lostness and inability to God in genuine sorrow, God doesn't leave us down there in that pit. God lifts us up and comforts us. That's why I started the service today with Psalm 32. Because Psalm 32 is the flip side of the coin from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David confessing his sin. Psalm 32, David ends up praising God and saying, How blessed is the one who is forgiven, whose sin the Lord does not hold against him. He said, When I kept quiet about my sin, even my bones within me dried up. He was a miserable man. But when David finally mourned over his sin and God cleansed him, then he was able to shout out in praise to God, how blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven and covered and it'll never be held against him. I want to ask you this morning, is there any brokenness in your life? Is, is, there, is there ever any time of brokenness in your life. Ever any time of brokenness, genuine sorrow in your life over your sin, over the lostness of people, over the condition of the world, is there ever a period of genuine sorrow in your life over that which breaks God's heart? Dr. Kent Hughes writes, True Christianity manifests itself in what we cry over and what we laugh about. It says a lot about us. Listen to this poem by Robert Browning Hamilton. He said, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and never a word said she, but all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. This morning, has there ever been sorrow in your life over your condition before God? Has that sorrow ever led you to repentance and faith in Christ? Maybe you need to confess to God today that there has never been that poverty of spirit that leads next to mourning over your condition. Maybe you've only lived for the good times of the world, filling your days and nights with constant things that can entertain you. Ask God this week to break your heart over your condition. If you say, oh, pastor, that's happened in my life. I've, I've been saved. Then I want to ask you, is there a continual sensitivity to sin in your life and a true brokenness over it.
If so, that, that is a wonderful sign and assurance of true salvation. Finally, is there, is there a brokenness and sorrow in your heart about the condition of the lost and the condition of the world? Would you be like Jesus? who wept over the world, wept over lostness. Does that describe you and me? Lord, it's one of the hardest beatitudes to think about. Happy or the sad. Because nobody wants to be sad. Nobody wants to, to mourn. But Lord, the promise of the scripture here is only when there's that true sense of mourning before you can there be that true release and comfort and freedom and joy. Lord, break our hearts over that which breaks your heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.